The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Three men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 45 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, the podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Wondering if comic book mogul Jim Shooter was the inspiration for Adam Sandler's nemesis in Happy Gilmore, I'm Adam. Now, last episode, Steven was pulled back into the editing bay of his film, UFO Club, and wouldn't you know it, he zapped Michael up to the mothership now to help with some reshoots, but fear not, for I have called upon some geeks from across the podcast universe who bring with them plenty of way out whimsy. Returning to the podcast tonight is a guest who was once accused of being podcast poison, but in yet another attempt to clear his name, we're dubbing him Podcast Potpourri, and we're sure you'll agree. It's it's Rob Graham. Hello there. And so, Rob, I have to ask, since your appearance on Wizards, how has your life changed over this last year? <laughs> I, I gotta tell you, um, I didn't think it would have much of an effect on my life, to be honest. No offense, I had a great time on the show, but yes. this is an audio podcast, and so I figured no one was going to recognize my face you know, around town. Plus, we have to wear masks all the time these days because of the pandemic. But then I thought, well, wait a minute, what if I make a mask that says I was a guest on the Wizards podcast. So that's what I did. And then one day I find myself in the grocery store and one of the workers saw my mask and she gave me an overripe banana. I mean, this thing was black for absolutely free. Wow. Because, and I quote, we were just going to throw it out anyway. So <laughs> I, I have to say it has affected my life profoundly. And I just I can't imagine what it must be like for you as like the host. Like you must get just a whole bunches of these terrible black bananas like all the time just for free. Yeah, we've even gotten apples with worms in them. I mean, we're, we're getting some of those, you know, variant fruits. Yeah, so it's it, it was great. Like, my life has really turned around here. This is good stuff. <laughs> well, we'll see if this uh, works out the same for our other guest after his first appearance here on Wizards, although it has been a long time coming. We are happy to welcome Rob's partner in crime on the After Lunch podcast, a man who would make a great Odin if you gifted him a metallic gold eye patch for Christmas, a published comic book author and all-around pop culture fan. Welcome to the show, Michael May. Oh, thank you so much. I cannot wait to cash in on my black bananas. I've uh, <laughs> got banana bread that needs to be made. and Oh, it was that's past the banana bread stage. When I got home, <laughs> I just threw that thing out. Like, it, oh. was, it was, yeah, it was done. But, well, but it was free. It's always nice to be recognized. And speaking of just superheroes and bananas, let's try to tie it all together. Do you guys have any recollection of the British import cartoon show Banana Man? <laughs> no. Uh, I, I remember. So. I, I remember Banana Grabber was a, a, a character very briefly on the Arrested Development, like someone they made up. Uh, Mr. Banana Grabber, I think they called him. <laughs> 
Banana Man were these cartoon shorts that played on Nickelodeon in the very early days of Nickelodeon. And it was basically like this kid, when he would eat a banana, he turned into a banana-themed superhero. <laughs> I challenge you all to look it up. Find Banana Man. You will not be disappointed. He has a cowl like Batman, but instead of bat ears, they are bananas. Ah, that's awesome. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Pretty fantastic. But a Banana Man aside, we got a little bit of business up top here, geeks. I do have to mention. So, my awesome co-hosts, Michael and Steven's jobs, are forcing them to take a sabbatical from the podcast for the next few months. As the hours of travel and other commitments evolved in bringing home the bacon for these guys has increased exponentially for them. I mean, Rob and Michael here are able to bring home the bananas for free. <laughs> but they gotta work for that bacon, okay? And so, they want to be here, but logistically it just won't work so we'll probably still get them on for like a 90 super cinema episode you know by the end of the year when they get a brief window of time open but as far as the main shows we're gonna have some great guests that are lined up right now to fill in for upcoming episodes present company included here so they will be missed but we're gonna have a lot of fun with some new and returning guests so uh speaking of those new guests though michael it is your first time around here and we gotta understand your comics history where it all began so why don't you tell us your origin story? So I don't remember a time when I ha wasn't reading comics. We always had them in the house. The ones that we kind of had when we were kids were kind of like your funny animal stuff, like your Looney Tunes, your Walt Disney, a lot of Harvey, Casper, Richie Rich, that kind of stuff. And every once in a while, we would delve into superheroes. And when I was a kid, like there was, there were no comic book stores. There was just, you know, the drugstore with the spinner rack and you would, we would just go flip around and see what was on there and whine and beg until mom <laughs> bought a comic for us. And so, you know, most of my superheroes, I, I discovered through TV, I discovered be watching like the Adam West Batman or George Reeves Superman or the super friends on Saturday morning. But like, I was always really interested in the superheroes and I was always both fascinated by and really angry about like when I would read an issue of Spider-Man and he would be, he would refer to something that happened, you know, three issues ago and the editors know it was a C amazing Spider-Man number, yada, yada, yada. And a lot of the times the editor would like make fun of you if you hadn't read it. <laughs> you know? And I would, uh, so I just, I had always wanted to like, not only get, go back and read some of those kind of holes in the story for myself, but I wanted to be like the kind of person who could actually buy every issue and follow along. But that just that wasn't possible for our family's budget, nor was it possible just for the way comic books were distributed at the time. So in the 80s, when you started having the direct market, all my friends were reading X-Men and they kept talking to me about, you know, oh, you got to read X-Men. It's just great. And I was so daunted by it because, again, there's all of this history and, and oh, yeah. X-Men especially is like super soap opera-y and that's that's part of the draw to it. So I was like, you know, I, I really want to get into a comic, but I can't just jump in in the middle of X-Men. I'm just going to feel that same frustration that I felt as a kid. And about that time, 
Marvel announced a new comic that was just starting up. It was a brand new title, number one issue by this artist that all my friends really love. John Byrne was starting Alpha Flight. And I said, okay, Alpha Flight number one, I'm going to jump on. I'm going to be on the ground floor of this comic. And those who know Alpha Flight already see my folly here because <laughs> Alpha Flight was a spinoff of X-Men. <laughs> the very first issue makes all this reference to all their previous appearances. But I was already I was already committed i already committed myself to it so i started digging in back issues and 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 we did start to get some comic book stores around this time so that made my search a little bit easier so i started my alpha flight collection i just kept it going from there i went to college in the late 80s early 90s and i we didn't have a comic book store in college so i kind of just dropped off and i I was like it was kind of killing me the whole time it's like they're still making alpha flight comics and i got no (laughs) access to them Jonesing for Alpha Flight, man. I was so jonesing. And I would talk about it. Like, I had some friends who were, you know, Marvel Comics readers uh, in college, and, and they were kind of going through the same thing. And some of them had heard of Alpha Flight. So when I graduated, the first thing I did when I moved to my new city was find the comic book store and start filling in the gaps because I was finally like i had a job with like disposable income i was like okay now i'm not just gonna do alpha flight i'm gonna like start you know getting some other stuff too and it was about that time i think that x-men number one jim lee came out and i was like okay x-men number one i know like i, I they weren't fooling me again i know that this isn't actually like a new story they're just kind of it's a jump on point but i i took it and I made a commitment to myself that every time, because I knew they were going to cross over with some stuff. They always do. And I said, every time they cross over with another title, I'm going to start buying that title. And when that title crosses over something else, and I was just, it started to like tree out from there. It was just like exponentially, you know. So like, I think the first thing they crossed over with was Ghost Rider. So I started buying Ghost Rider. And then there was like the whole Midnight Suns crossover. So now I got like something, (laughs) 18 more titles that I'm buying every month. (laughs) Oh, Marvel loves you, man. They sure did. (laughs) They totally had me. And then Image came out. And all of my friends were like going crazy about Image. I was like, okay, I got to check this out. What's this? What's going on here? So I'm, I, you know, I'm getting my Spawn and my Young Blood and my Savage Dragon and my Wildcats and all of that. And thanks to Dark Horse, because suddenly Creator Owned was like a whole thing. And so Dark Horse started their Legends imprint. Do you guys remember the Legends oh, yeah. imprint? So there's John Byrne again. And uh, he's doing Next Men now. And and introduced me to Mike Mignola with Hellboy, who I had hated on Alpha Flight. But (laughs) here's his new thing, and it looks really cool. So I got that. And and Frank Miller and Sin City. I spent way too much money on comics in the (laughs) 90s. I was never a speculator. I didn't care about that part of it. But it's just like, give me all of these stories with this great art. That's awesome, Michael. Yeah, because it's awesome to hear that you were in the thick of it. Like, all those years where it's like, you know, you were loving comics but didn't have access. So the moment you had it, that was the 90s that's when it was really yeah. eaten up and so that yeah. you're perfect and it should be mentioned we originally tried to have you on back i believe it was for issue 31 where it was all about the legend imprint at dark horse so we wanted to talk to you there and just you know schedules didn't work out and we're finally here now the reason dark horse right is so important is you eventually got your own comic book published uh, through dark yeah. horse can you give us a brief synopsis of of that experience and what was involved yeah so so my buddy Jason Copeland and I, he's an artist and a brilliant artist, and uh, we had wanted to 
do something together. I had had a few things printed in some like indie kind of anthologies and stuff like that, but I hadn't, I hadn't really done anything big, but we wanted to make a comic together. And so we made a web comic called kill all monsters, which is just a, it was a big giant monsters fighting giant robots kind of comic. And it got a lot of attention and people really liked it. And so we decided to do a collection of what we had made so far, did a Kickstarter that was really successful. Uh, we made our goal in one day and so we put out, uh, just through a, a very small press publisher, the collection of what happened in the webcomic, plus a little bit extra. And then I think it was just Jason was at a convention and this editor from Dark Horse, like, picked up our little comic and, uh, said that he thought it was really cool. And Jason said, you want to, you want to maybe publish it? Because <laughs> <laughs> we're still working on it. We, we're continuing the story. We have more that hasn't been published yet. And, uh, it took a little while, but, you know, after a year or so, um, Dark Horse said, yeah, we, we would like to do that. Not only would we like to publish the omnibus of like everything that you've done, plus, you know, the, the completion of the story, but we would also like to tie into it with a three part story in Dark Horse Presents which was like, that was even cooler than Dark Horse publishing the hardback for me because Dark Horse Presents was such a seminal anthology comic in the 90s. That's where Sin City got its start. I think Next Men might have got its start there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yep. I don't know if Hellboy... I think Hellboy first premiered in a Next Men comic. Yeah, I think you're right. And then Seed of Destruction came out, but then like Wolves of St. August, which is like one of my favorite Hellboy stories, that first appeared in Dark Horse Presents. So, you know, all of these just great, fantastic, legendary creators... And now you joined the pantheon of those who contributed. Yeah, it was so, so cool. That's awesome. And I, I'm assuming, Michael, through all this, that you've gotten some good feedback. You know, if it was the old days, people would have been writing you letters telling you how much they enjoyed your comics work. So I say it's time we check out the letters that were flying into Wizard with Willie Lumpkin's mailbag. <laughs> All right, so I want to ask just up top real quick before we get into the actual letters. Did you guys ever take your fandom to that point of wanting to write into a letters column or send a letter directly to a publisher and give them your opinion? I never wrote in, like, my opinion on this storyline, that storyline. And I'm going to mess up some of this uh, story, but no one's going to know any any different. Like, my memory is so bad that I'll, I'll get, I'll get like, 60% of this story right. <laughs> One of the Spider-Man books, and this is the main thing I can't quite remember, if it was either Web of Spider-Man or maybe the Todd McFarlane adjectiveless Spider-Man, they solicited from fans to name their letters page. And I really I thought, oh, this would be fun. And I really racked my brain and I came up with an answer for my submission and I sent it in in a letter. And my answer, uh, I thought the letters page be called Vibrations from the Web, which I thought was really cool. Like, isn't that cool? Like, you know, like all that's how the messages are coming in through the web to the spider in the middle of the web. I I was actually positive it was going to (laughs) win. I thought it was so perfect. (laughs) And um, it did not win. I don't remember what won instead. But I think on this podcast, let's all agree that I should have won and my title was better than whatever they came up with. The only justification I can find for why they would not choose it is we have to quote Kit Ramsey from the movie Bowfinger. It's too cerebral! 
<laughs> and maybe that's it. And I remember like thinking, you know, trying to be really objective and whatever they came up with, I was like, that's not as good. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so that was the time I think that, that might be the only time I wrote in. If, if I wrote in another time, I just don't recall. That's pretty great, though. Yeah. Uh, so, Michael, let's hear about your history of writing in. I totally did. And if I have like comics that I have things published in, but I can remember writing in and, and getting published in the letters pages to where there was a flash issue. There was um, a uh, oh, I just blinked um, poop. The <laughs> the big one, though. You wrote into poop? Oh, yeah, that was a great comic crazy. back in the day. <laughs> That was a Superman one, but the the one that I was happiest about was Hardware. I was a humongous Milestone fan. Wow. Yeah, I just I loved all those guys, and I wrote in. I guess I got published in two or three Milestone comics, and every month they would have a prize where they would like pick like a letter of the month or whatever. But actually won that one time, which just it was. Oh, that's the awesome. Prize was like they sent me like little mini posters like signed by the you know the artists who were working on the book. And I forget what else, like it was a little certificate or something. But Milestone was a hugely important endeavor to me. I've been to a lot of comic book conventions, met a lot of professionals. I don't typically get tongue tied. People are people and, and I'm fairly comfortable talking to anybody. But the one time where I just completely lost it and couldn't get two words out was talking to Dwayne McDuffie. That's a, that's what I thought you were going to say. Yeah, yeah, I would be totally right there with you. Yeah. I just, I could not express my appreciation, not only for just his writing in general and, and, and his wisdom and like, I love his, I loved his stories, but I also just loved his essays. He had a blog that was, that was really cool and influential for me, but then just, you know, what he did as one of the, the leaders of, of Milestone was yeah. amazing. And, yeah, that's uh, fantastic. Yeah, so yeah, I got pretty good at it for a while. It, it, that was about this time period. It was in the '90s where where I was writing in and uh, and getting published fairly regularly. I kind of like you know you kind of start to figure out like what they're looking for and yeah. yeah. You know, you want to stroke them a little bit, but also, <laughs> you know, just a little bit of critical insight, but not too much. You know, you got to hit that sweet spot. And uh, I kind of broke the code for a little while there. Yeah, well, let, let's see what it took to break the code of what Wizard was looking for, because I will tell you, it is nothing as highbrow as what Dwayne McDuffie wanted to read. <laughs> but uh, why don't you take us into our first letter here, Rob? Dear Wizard, after reading some of the DC Marvel crossover battles, which were really cool in Wizard number 39, I had an idea. What if Marvel and DC merged and their histories were combined? Some neat things could happen. For example, Galactus destroys Krypton. Superman and the Justice League are the first to confront him on Earth. Later, Galactus is judged by the Spectre for all the death he has caused. Aquaman finds Captain America in the block of ice. After being revived, Cap joins the Justice League. Batman, in turn, joins the Avengers. Deathstroke takes a contract on the X-Men, but loses his right eye in a battle with Wolverine. He puts Terra, who is now born with her powers, into the New Mutants as a spy. Why not have a contest to see who can come up with the best Marvel and DC merged history suggestion? And that's Mike Miller from Orlando, Florida. And Wizard's response here is pretty interesting because they say, hey, that sounds neat. No, it's not a contest, but we'd <laughs> like to see some more ideas along these lines. Send them into Magic Words and we'll print a few for everyone to see. Who knows? Maybe if we come up with something really cool, it might inspire Marvel and DC to do a What If Elseworlds crossover. And that's exactly what happened. 
<laughs> that is so awesome that the idea for Amalgam that is just happening about a year and a half from this point, I mean, I, it's not to say that fans weren't always imagining that type of stuff to happen, but to put it so succinctly here, you know, the only difference being that Amalgam, like the characters themselves merged, not just the universes yeah, and the history, yeah. right? So, you know, you had Dark Claw instead of Batman and Wolverine existing in that universe, but that is really, really fun. This is the kind of stuff, you know, of comics fans of history that it's so neat to be like did it influence did it not it really seems <laughs> yeah. like this was uh, you know pushing that forward for the publishers and they're good ideas uh, like the three that he mentions in his letter they're all pretty intriguing yeah i actually i can't wait to talk about when it comes up that was a huge event for me when uh, <laughs> when they had fun with all that all right what's next rob dear magic words uh, if the green goblin held mary jane in front of him and Spider-Man accidentally webbed Mary Jane, don't you think it would suck just a little? I mean, <laughs> she'd get major webbing all over her body except for her head. Ben Smith, Fargo, North Dakota. And Wizard's response? Yeah, come to think of it, that would suck just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is such a weird letter, I love it. It's so, it's so bizarre. Fargo, North Dakota, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I should have done like a like a Fargo type. Oh actually. yeah, you want to reach? Or like this guy, which is like, did you ever look at your hand? I mean, really look at your hand? <laughs> that was the vibe I was getting. Again, deep thinking, deep thinking here in the pages of Wizard. Uh, but no, that, that's very fun, and you know, it's it's just one of those things, especially in this era of multiverses. We're about to see Spider-Man: No Way Home. Who knows? Mary Jane might show up. She might get webbed every everywhere but her head and say this sucks <laughs> just a little all right guys that's time for wizard news as reported last issue marvel was downsizing their operations by laying off tons of staff and canceling 30 titles from their line wizard provides the list of which books exactly are getting the axe including blade the vampire hunter morbius night thrasher namor marvel comics presents secret defenders dark hawk guardians of the galaxy all three conan books both punisher warzone and war journal nova and ravage 2099 among others so of that list gentlemen which of those titles would you or did you miss the most oh porn went out for night thrasher oh <laughs> <laughs> Just, just kidding. I don't know. Let me see. Not many of them. Maybe Secret Defenders for me. Yeah, I can't see of any other ones that would really would have appealed to me too much. But maybe the Secret Defenders. I was definitely reading Secret Defenders. I was reading Blade and Morbius. I was reading Ravage, and not at all sad to see that go. That was <laughs> my least favorite of the 2099 titles. But and I don't remember specifically my thoughts on the quality of Blade and Morbius. But I, I did really enjoy that whole Midnight Suns kind of imprint so probably those would be the ones i, I missed the most now for me i have a near complete run of dark hawk so that was kind of sad to see that go you know they rebooted him years later he became a, a galactic hero you know so mm. he wasn't gone forever uh but yeah so that was what and you know ravage 2099 i also have a complete run of because it's real <laughs> cheap to pick that up yeah, i bet it is <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's, that was my goal for this show, is in addition to having all of the issues 
issues of Wizard in our archive is having a complete archive of all the 2099 comics. So I've been building that up. But uh, speaking of somebody who was working in the universe of 2099, Michael, what do we have up next? So artist Ron Lim, who has worked exclusively for Marvel up to this point in his career on long runs of Silver Surfer, Captain America, and X-Men 2099, is now going to work for the Distinguished Competition after a little nudge from a past guest that we have actually had on the After Lunch podcast. Lim states, Ron Mars writes Green Lantern. He's been like, come on, do some Green Lantern. So by the time I left Marvel, I had already had an offer there. Lim will be working on a fill-in issue of Hawkman and the Flash, as well as the Superman Silver Surfer crossover one-shot as he prepares for a long run on Green Lantern. So very curious, Michael, how do you know Ron Mars to say, hey, why don't you just come on my show and not talk about comics? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure that I met him during my days when I used to do a lot of writing about comics. Um, I wrote for comic book resources for a while back when that was cool. <laughs> I wrote for School Library Journal and specifically their kind of graphic novels for kids columns. So I just reviewed a lot of comics there and so i just i ran into a lot of comics professionals through that and and met a lot of people but ron just and i just kind of clicked just based on some shared interests uh on some things and uh he's a ginormous tarzan fan as am i so at some point i remember doing an interview with him about one of his comics oh it actually was about a tarzan comic because he was writing edgarriceburrows.com has like kind of their own like newspaper strips like a subscription kind of thing and he was writing one of those so i interviewed him about it and then when i started my Tarzan movie podcast, I invited him on to do a couple of episodes of that. And so we just kind of stayed in touch and interact on Twitter quite a bit, like each other's stuff. And yeah, so I think I put out the call at some point for people who liked all of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, which is kind of a small group. <laughs> everybody likes the first one, not everybody likes the rest of them. And Ron was one of the people who raised his hand and said, yeah, I want to talk about that. So uh, that's how he was on After Lunch. He's like, I don't have to talk about Green Lantern again? Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's happy to talk about his, his what he's writing and stuff, but I, I kind of get a kick out of just, let's just geek out over somebody else's thing. Yeah. Uh, and he's happy to do it. All right, Rob, what's the next story? Well, Mike Zeck, the celebrated Marvel artist of the 70s and 80s on such titles as Marvel Superheroes, Secret Wars, the original The Punisher miniseries, and credited with the design of Spider-Man's black costume, is returning to penciling comics interiors with the Ultraverse miniseries Eliminator after a one-year absence. Although uh, Zek clarifies, quote, in essence, I haven't been away. I've sort of been around, end quote. <laughs> Wizard also reports that Zek, quote, recently performed non-glamorous work designing cards and pogs. <laughs> <gasps> For Marvel. Uh, <laughs> you got caught up in that. Oh, Mike, if you could just take care of a couple of these Pog sketches for us. Uh, <laughs> we think it's going to be a big thing. Big, big. But Zek is quick to clarify that he's not uh, planning on taking any monthly comics work. Quote, I don't think that'll be good for me or Malibu to try to keep a monthly schedule going because I know that deadline will catch me. <laughs> Are you guys big Zek heads? You love your Mike Zek? 
I do. His style was was very distinct and uh, like not mentioned in in some of uh, the credits that they they gave him here. Like uh, the whole Craven's Last Hunt is Mike Zach. Yeah. Yeah. So I yeah I am a fan. I I'm definitely a fan. And apparently like I like that he just even in the, these quotes he seems to know himself, which I like. Like he's not going to take on more than than he can handle, and I think that's smart. All right. Well, uh, speaking of guys who maybe took on a little bit more than they can handle <laughs> at the beginning a few issues back the x month event had the founders of image comics trading characters for one issue wherein jim lee plotted and drew issue 13 of savage dragon which sidelined eric larson's greenfin tough guy in favor of jim lee's own grifter <laughs> character so basically he just made it a grifter story <laughs> meanwhile larson took over wildcats from lee now wizard reports that eric larson is now putting out his own version of issue 13 that quote fits seamlessly into the continuity of the book he had established. Larson explains, quote, Jim put one of the characters who had been in every single issue in the hospital and... Quote, Jim was so late, he ended up putting October on the cover. Issue 14 is an October issue. So there are two October <laughs> issues. So after covering Jim Lee's version of issue 13 on a mini episode a while back, I contacted Eric Larson on social media and he downplayed his frustration with Lee messing up his universe. But I recently found a copy of Larson's issue 13 of Savage Dragon in a back issue bin. It was fascinating to find that he took several pages that he drew for his issue of Wildcats that he took over for Jim Lee and just inserted them into this story for his version of Savage Dragon 13, leaving no trace at all of Jim Lee's plot. It, <laughs> it is not related in any way to what Jim Lee presented. So I'm not buying it, Mr. Larson. You were definitely ticked off. You needed to erase that. All right, Michael. So Wizard reports that former Vampirella model Kathy Christian has moved over to Maximum Press to portray the new superheroine Evangeline. So Harris Comics has been on the hunt to find a new vampy that was quote, over five foot five and would be able to look the part of the bloodsucker with a good heart, end quote. Sitting they specifically did not want a real va-va-voom knock you out and kill you girl because of the kid factor. <laughs> you know all those kids reading Vampire Hour? Yeah. <laughs> I just want to throw in, I'm five foot six, and I just, you know, so no, just, just in the right. I mean, but I'm more of a va va voom, so I, I get why. Yeah, I get why. I didn't uh, but interesting, Harris is not releasing the name of the winning model at this time, but does provide a headshot. Yeah, I thought that I, I was very curious about that choice. Like, are they just going to say Vampirella, Vampirella? You know, like they don't want to just like Kathy Christian apparently got too big for her britches. She's going <laughs> to move on to the, you know, the competition there. They're like, no, no, no. She's you're just Vampirella. That's what you do. Yeah, it's just a picture of her. Meet the new Vampirella model. And how many like I, I really have no knowledge of this whatsoever. Like there were just how many events were there? Like, I wonder, like, these people oh, must I mean, have the had comic a... conventions, yeah. I mean, the, there was always a Vampirella, and Wizard was sure to be there with their camera every time. They <laughs> get some yeah, pictures of Vampirella yeah. for the next issue. Sure, sure, yeah. okay. But they, these people must have needed other jobs. Like, they must have had to work a full-time job, and then, I, I need this weekend off because there's a comic convention kind of thing, right? Like, it's, it's, <laughs> oh, not, a, it's not a full-time gig, I imagine. <laughs> I think yeah. there were some photo covers involved, too. Oh, yeah. Correctly. Mm -hmm. okay. 
right. Well, now that Marvel owns Malibu's Ultraverse, crossovers with Marvel characters like Thor and Loki are on the horizon. Uh, but they also announced that, quote, a more minor character, the Black Knight, missing since Avengers number 375, will turn up in Ultra Force number eight, end quote. In a story that will reunite Marv Wolfman and George Perez, the creative team behind the new Teen Titan. So uh, even though the Black Knight just appeared in Marvel's Eternals film, it's unlikely this piece of history will ever see the light of day again. I mean, that's kind of crazy that you disappear in a storyline in one universe and then yeah. you reappear in another universe. <laughs> Maybe both of you understand or, or, or remember uh, Malibu's Ultraverse, how long it lasted and everything, but mm. did it last long? I don't know anything about it at all. What do you remember, Michael? I've been talking all about it for years, but what about you? <laughs> I remember it being a thing. I remember, I, I think I checked out a couple of when, when Marvel bought it. Like, Malibu started at a time when, like, everybody was starting their own comics universe, right? Like, Dark Horse gave it a shot, you know? Yeah. So, and it was just, like, one more. Valiant came around that doesn't time. Sure. Everybody wanted, like, their own superhero universe. And I just kind of had had enough of them. So I ignored Malibu until Marvel bought them and started crossing them over with some characters that I actually cared something about. So I don't know. I wasn't impressed. I, I think I remember there was one character who I really liked just visually. She was a, it was a female character. And I remember she had like red hair, but like with the blonde highlights and uh, she had some kind of fire powers or something. And uh, I think she had like two issues and then it was canceled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was basically like, Hey, let's kind of do what Marvel does. Like where image was saying, we reimagined what Marvel was and then we yeah. took it with us. The Ultraverse was kind of like, no, no, we're, we're doing the Marvel thing over here. <laughs> okay. You know, like th this is what we do. And so it made sense for Marvel to buy them. But yeah, it, it was really kind of a four year experiment. They had like two years where they were published by Malibu and were the, you know, the new thing tried to get everybody's attention then marvel bought them and then yeah within like a year and a half or so then they just shelved everything and it was over they crossed him over and then they said okay we're done we're done because <laughs> as we actually revealed uh, just recently from cbr of all places michael <laughs> that it was actually marvel was just buying malibu because dc wanted to buy malibu uh, and so they're like let's buy them before they do so we have more market share because they were just buying everything at this time but now it's trying to uh, get into the meat of of this issue, we are going to check out our table of contents. Issue 45 of Wizard sports a May 1995 cover date, but it hit newsstands a month earlier for what is the first official April Fool's Day issue of Wizard, wherein the crew pulled many pranks on readers. This would become a tradition that would just get bigger and bigger each year. You know, they would really try to pull one over, but this time around it was kind of more subtle. So first, Wizard had been profiling various creators on the final final page of the magazine for over a year. So at the very end of each issue, you'd have just some writer or artist or whoever in the wizard profile, and they would ask them the same questions after providing a little bit of detail about who they are. Now, according to the wizard retrospective in wizard issue 50, they had a staff member pose for this photo and then hired another artist to draw the art samples that they featured and then really made this fake creator, Derek DeAvril, out to be a jerk. But despite that fact, they were still contacted by publishers that wanted to hire the guy. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's, that's how good they sold him, I guess, and how good the art looked, you know. But, uh, Rob, why don't you read a little bit of the question and answer situation that they were presenting here with Derek DeAvril? Sure. Here, here. First comic book read, Team America, number one. 
<laughs> Favorite current comic? That's a tough one. Uh, while there are a lot of good books out there, none have impressed me enough to be my favorite. <laughs> Favorite work of your own? Well, my stuff for Warmonger was cool, but the inking and coloring sucked. <laughs> Person you'd most like to meet? There's no one I'm really dying to meet. Most embarrassing moment? I went skinny dipping once and forgot where I left my clothes. The adventure of getting back to my room would make a good comic, which uh, gives me an idea. Superpower you'd most like to have? To make money out of thin air. If you had the power of the Beyonder, I'd make money out of thin air. <laughs> Favorite munchie at 2 a.m.? I love pork rinds, especially in hot salsa dip. Gives me a pretty funky breath, though. Favorite pastime or hobby? Dancing. Women love guys who can really move on the dance floor. Costume you wore the last time you went trick-or-treating? A Chippendales dancer last year. <laughs> last good movie you saw? Pulp Fiction. Tarantino finally did a film right. Wow. <laughs> Person who would play you in a movie about yourself? Wesley Snipes. It's weird hearing me say that, isn't it? Uh, and then finally... <laughs> why do you read Wizard? I'll read the issue this sees print in, but I don't normally pick it up. It's too negative. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> Fake Derek Avril laid it down. He's just got it all figured out. He doesn't have time for comics. He's just the best, so he'll do it. What's that money? But other jokes in this issue included making humorous anagrams out of the job titles and names in the wizard masthead. So, for example, the copy editor, Andrew Carden. So all of those characters became Icy Torpedo. Now a dark nerd. <laughs> <laughs> they provided a fake letter in the Market Watch section, and they changed up the top ten comics list to include literal funny books. So just the ones that they thought were the top ten funniest books of all time. Uh, there's also the top ten heroes and villains we'd like to see dead. So instead of just doing one Mord of the Month, there was all Mord of the Months that they thought should die. And I'll cover those on the mini episode, guys. Uh, and then the fact that all the comic book cover scans featured in the price guide in this issue are foreign editions from Spain and Germany and Greece and Italy, Canada, Brazil, Israel, Sweden, Switzerland, and beyond. So there's even one where they say, we don't know what country this is from. <laughs> <laughs> Could not identify the characters there, so I thought that was pretty funny. But this issue also featured two different covers that were both milestones. So one was a Captain America cover, which was taken from a Marvel Fleer Flare trading card design. But this was the first time that Cap had graced the cover of the Guide to Comics in its four years of existence at that point. So it just kind of tells you where Captain America was in terms of popularity at this time. We'll get into that a little bit later. The other milestone is the fact that this is the first ever Mark Silvestri cover featuring his characters from Cyberforce, which is actually surprising since his image co-founders had provided wizard covers from the very beginning. I mean, literally with Todd McFarlane, but then sometimes in successive months, the other artists were doing like back-to-back -back covers. And so I was like, wow, oh, that's nuts. But he finally got in on the game. But this Cyberforce cover would actually be in vogue right now as there is a Kickstarter that just launched this week to create a 664-page 
hardcover collection because Cyberforce hasn't been reprinted since 1994. <laughs> there might be a reason for that. <laughs> but but it is available now. I guess they saw what happened with the She comics and things like that. So like, yeah, we could do that too. Yeah. Cyberforce, How baby. Many pages? 664. I find that hard to believe there are 664 pages of Cyberforce. <laughs> well, I believe that he's counting all spinoffs because like Ripclaw. <laughs> okay, Ripclaw gets a miniseries now. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. so every, everything they did related to it is brought okay. together. Gotcha. <laughs> now, in his monthly editorial, Editor-in-Chief Pat McCallum explains how prior to working at Wizard, he managed a comic book store. It was actually the comic book store that was owned by the Seamus family, which then birthed Wizard. But he said that he briefly went away from his pure love of comics just for the arted story, and instead, he started hoarding multiple copies of books in the early 90s to resell someday for maximum profit. But instead, quote, what they did was turn me off of comic collecting. He ends by suggesting that fans stop buying multiple issues and only buy comics that they want to read. A bit hypocritical, you have to say, for a magazine that is mainly a price guide and directly influences the value of comics with their opinions. So it's just interesting because I think that is the difference though, right? It's like there was the higher ups where that was their mission with this magazine. And I feel like the people in the trenches that we've interviewed on the Wizard Files, they have told us that it, it was all for love of the game. And then when the business end came into it, they were always upset. Cause like, no, 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 we're just, we want to celebrate good comics, not just advertisers. But I'm just curious, Michael, you said you really never got into comics for the values. Rob, did you ever attempt to make big bucks off your collection? Can you guess the answer? <laughs> <laughs> I believe last time you told us you just had stacks of comics oh, yeah. around the I, house. Yeah, I, I, I was, I did exactly what Pat McCallum uh, yeah. suggested. Like I just read comics and then they'd end up under my bed, unbagged, unboarded. <laughs> and then, and then every once in a while I'd find them and it'd be like, Oh my gosh, I remember this one. I just, you know, sit on the floor and reread it or, but I never, never really did it for speculation. Never ever bought one because I thought I was going to resell it someday or it was going to be worth any money. I would just buy it. Cause if I thought it was uh, something I wanted to read. And hence why you guys still have the pure love of comics. It pure was love. always about the story, always about the contents. Now, speaking of Silvestri, he is the feature story of On the Mark, which is an interview with the 35-year-old comics veteran. So I have to ask, Michael, as somebody who was hearing all about X-Men, you know, for quite a while, did you know about Mark Silvestri? Is there a project that has Mark Silvestri attached that rings any bell to you? Well, I, I mean, I, I read Cyberforce <laughs> for, I don't know, at least the uh, the few issues that he put out kind of right away, and like all of the image stuff, it was always challenged uh, schedule-wise, right? So yeah. a lot of it I just lost patience for. Like, it's just not worth waiting and waiting and waiting. But I guess the X-Men was my previous experience with him. So really, yeah, that and Cyberforce are the two. How about you, Rob? More of a passing knowledge. Like, I've definitely seen his work in books, but I wasn't really reading X-Men. So I'm sure I've, I saw some of it. I'm sure I've seen his work. Like, I know he did Wolverine as mm-hmm. a magazine, but like, I again, I wasn't really picking that up. So I like, I probably just saw it here and there. And then the, the other things like Cyberforce, I, I don't even know what that is. Like, I read <laughs> this article and I actually, like, I liked his personality the way it came through in the article. I liked him, yeah. but I'm not a huge fan or, or not hugely knowledgeable. I should say about his work. Yeah, it's interesting because this article mostly is about his personality. You know, it, it just recounts how Silvestri doesn't take the interview seriously. He doesn't want to have his picture taken. He's just making fun of the fact that he has to pose, you know. <laughs> but then his staff mentioned that he is beloved, you know, for his lack of ego. And then Silvestri refutes 
this and says he definitely has an ego. That's what he believes drives people to greatness, but he admits, quote, what I can't deal with is somebody who thinks they're already great. So he likes to bring in these people, like, you know, at this time you had David Finch who came in, you know, did some work, and then Silvestri is also talking about, you know, this guy who's, you know, the, the new kid on the block, Michael Turner, little knowing that within a year or so, that guy is going to take over the world. But, uh, so, uh, what's interesting too is Silvestri reveals that he often introduces himself to strangers in the office who turn out to be his employees, <laughs> like freelancers <laughs> that he's hired. And the funny thing about that is Garib Seamus, the big cheese of Wizard Magazine, apparently did the same thing to people who had worked at Wizard for years. So all the former Wizard staffers we've talked to, they just say like, yeah, I worked there for like three years. He never knew my name. Every time he just came after me and said, hi, Garib Seamus, nice to meet you. You know, so it's just something that's at a certain point, I think you just can't maintain the connection to the little people. <laughs> you're busy. You're the big star. But the magazine follows Silvestri to a signing at a comic book store where he is told that director John Woo was doing a signing on the same day down the street at Virgin Records. So I ask you guys, would you have gone to get Mark Silvestri's autograph or John Woo's autograph? I would have gone to get Mark Silvestri's autograph and I wasn't a big fan, but I was I liked his stuff enough that at least I would have enjoyed meeting him and just having the experience of, of having him sign something. John Woo, I haven't seen, I don't think any of John Woo's Chinese films, but I have a real dislike for his American films. <laughs> I just say if you show up with the dove, he'll be your best friend. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he made a Mission Impossible movie that I don't like, which yes. I thought was impossible. So he accomplished the mission. Yes, he pulled yeah. it off. <laughs> uh, and I'll just uh, completely echo rubber stamp what Michael just said. <laughs> Same answer all the way. Well, now the second cover story finds Wizard asking the question: Can Cap? be cool which is a conversation with mark wade who will be writing captain america with issue number 443 taking over from mark grunewald who had been writing it forever this is after wade's successful run on the flash for dc i mean he was just everywhere he's got this going on you know these two books and then he's got astro cities coming out about this time so i mean and he, oh, kingdom come was in the works so, i mean he was just yeah. busy 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 but wade says the problem is not that the character was created during world war ii or that his costume needs to be updated in order to make him cool, like giving him armor or something. (laughs) But the quote... (laughs) He looks and acts and talks like your dad. No kid thinks his dad is cool. (laughs) You guys are both dads. Do your kids think you're cool? I I hope they do. But they... (laughs) <laughs> my, my kid's a big nerd. <laughs> my kids are young enough to still think I'm yeah. cool. We'll see oh, how yeah. long that lasts. Uh, but I'm curious, how big a fan were you guys of Captain America in comics? You know, before Chris Evans made us love Steve <laughs> Rogers forever. But the comic book version of Captain America, did you pick up back issues? Were you reading him and or talking to your friends about how awesome he is? Uh, I didn't talk to anybody about it, but I was always a big fan. And I, I did read a lot of the Grunewald stuff. I, I read Mark Wade stuff. I've always been a big Cap fan. I have never believed in those people who think Captain America and Superman aren't cool or interesting. I love characters, heroes that really truly believe in truth, justice, and a better tomorrow. And I think that's great. And it, it's always like strong moral compass in a hero. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm on board for that. So yeah, huge Cap fan. I was worried, very worried about Chris Evans before I saw uh, first Avengers and I was like oh he's 
amazing. <laughs> so great. But I, I went in going, oh, he's not going to be the cap. And it's in my heart, you know, from the comics. And uh, he did his own thing. And it's fantastic. And I love him, too. So, yeah, cap big for me. Yeah, I mean, I can say, honestly, I've only ever read like three Captain America comics before, you know, like Winter Soldier and stuff yeah. like that. Like I had Captain America 350 where he's facing off against U.S. agent. Right. You know, I have uh, there was an issue which had Hulk on the cover and Hulk was like grabbing Cap by the chest and squeezing it. And then there was uh, an issue where Doc Ock was the bad guy. And I picked those up in back issue bins in the 90s. But then I pretty much never read a Captain America comic after that. But Michael, were you down with Steve Rogers? Uh, so I remember having conversations with a buddy of mine about Captain America. We both agreed that we loved Cap as a guest star in other people's books. But both of us had at various times tried to read um, the Captain America's own title. And it just hadn't really it hadn't clicked for us for whatever reason and maybe it was just whoever the writer or the artist was at the time but give us a spider-man comic where cap shows up in the last page of a thing when spider-man's at his lowest and he's he's you know just beat down and cap shows up and holds his hand out to help spidey up you know and, and you just know like the next issue is just going to be this amazing team up between the two of them we were all about that kind of stuff like we wanted to see captain america like i don't know almost like reserve him for special occasions where he could just really come in and like save the day and, and be the guy but we weren't that interested in seeing like the day-to-day drama hanging out with d-man d-man <laughs> d-man is the craziest character in comics to yeah. me just that that outfit he's like i stole daredevil's first costume yeah. <laughs> and then my name starts with d but i'm not daredevil see i'm d-man <laughs> right but i do remember this article and i remember being very excited i had not read Wade's Flash stuff, but I remember everybody just talking about how amazing it was. And I remember just being impressed with his attitude in this article and and I did. I, I actually started buying Captain America when he took over. Oh, wow. Yeah, just because I wanted to see, like, okay, give me, like, a, the cool Captain America. Like, I guess going back to Rob's point, like, I always knew Cap could be cool, but just whatever stories I had been picking up, I didn't think he was that cool in him. So I was eager to see Mark Wade give that a shot. Do you remember, Michael, if you enjoyed it? And the reason I'm asking is after reading this article for this podcast, I went into the uh, Unlimited app and I read a bunch of Mark Wade's cap story starting from 443 and i was like oh yeah and i it was a reread for me but i was i was digging them all over again i thought i thought they were really cool yeah i did too i really did enjoy it yeah. and i loved the uh i love the art on it yeah well it's interesting because yeah what wade says that his approach is going to be right how's he going to make it different how's he going to get people excited about it he says it's going to be based on the fleischer superman cartoons where <laughs> quote you don't get into superman's head he just does stuff <laughs> Right. And Wade's take on Cap will also be inspired by Jack Ryan from the Tom Clancy spy novels. Quote, his great strength is that he is the most adaptable human being around. He hits the ground running no matter what. And it's mentioned that there is a character coming back to Cap Comics who hasn't been seen in 15 years. So Wizard speculates that it could be Sharon Carter or even Bucky. But Wade explains, quote, as far as I'm concerned, Bucky is sleeping with the fishes. (laughs) To bring back Bucky would be an incredible cheat there's nothing you could possibly do in reviving him that would disappoint someone unless your name is ed brubaker right (laughs) (laughs) that was so funny to read that quote in the article it was great yeah i mean during this time period the, the one rule of comics was like the only people who stay dead are uncle ben and bucky yeah yeah and now it's just uncle ben 
Because really, what would he do if he came back? I mean, ultimately. (laughs) Well, undo all of Spider-Man's origin. Yeah. All right. Now, next up here, Ladies Man, uh, is an interview with good girl artist Adam Hughes. So in the middle of the bad girl art craze, here's this good girl artist. He talks of his pinup girl art style, explaining, I'd hate to think of it as if I'm doing anything destructive or demeaning. I actually think it's kind of old-fashioned and nostalgic, reflecting the ways comics were done in more innocent times. More innocent times with busty, scantily clad ladies. Okay, I get get it, I get it. But after spending years idolizing Dave Stevens and John Byrne and George Perez, Hughes started doing some work, you know, for small publishers. He got his break drawing 12 issues, though, of Justice League with Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis, and he then got to collaborate on Star Trek Dead of Honor, which was a graphic novel he did with Chris Claremont, you know? So, I mean, he was really hitting, you know, these big-time creators people who really had uh, done some great work in the past and then he really became known for cover artwork you know especially doing like vampirella for harris comic and a lot of others for all the kids yeah for the kids kids. (laughs) (laughs) but when i say the name adam hughes do you guys have a familiarity with him is there a particular project in his resume uh yeah i I will say i'm a big fan of kelly thompson's black widow that's uh, ongoing right now and he has done i think the covers for all of them and they're so stylistic and excellent so those are really really good mark wade did a invisible woman miniseries and all the covers were good they were all adam hughes but one in particular was like an homage to uh marilyn monroe and diamonds are a girl's best friend and and, <laughs> and sue richards is on the cover in this like, this blue uh, gown and surrounded by tuxedoed guys like worshiping her all around her and that's a really good one and just classic covers like the batgirl number one gail simone's like that's like the best Batgirl drawing that's ever been pretty much. And so there's, there's been a lot through the years of his covers. That's where I know him most as, as a cover artist. Mm-hmm. How about you, Michael? Yeah, pretty much every comic book series that stars a female character, he's had some kind of incredible run of covers on them, like Wonder Woman and Catwoman. And I think the first time I ever saw his work was the uh, the Marvel Swimsuit <laughs> Editions <laughs> magazines. I remember a really cool piece he did that was just like the X-Men lounging by the pool or whatever. And just really being impressed with his stuff and he for years we have a local comic book convention here it's a small convention it's really cool and very kind of intimate and and laid back and adam would come to that for a really long time and for a long time i i really wanted to get like an original adam hughes drawing and i had this collection going of black canary was like my my favorite character for a long time and so that's i would just ask everybody to draw black canary for me and i really wanted an adam hughes black canary and i kept trying to get in line every time he would come to the show i'd get in line to try to go get uh, a commission from him and he would be like full up like before the show even started he would be full up wow. and so i figured out the way that i other than get, getting up at four o'clock in the morning to like stand in line which i just i'm too lazy for that um, <laughs> but i knew that if i volunteered at the comic book convention that i would be in the show like you know helping set up and everything and then i would be able to go and get in line before anybody even got in the building like paying guests so that's what I did. And I paid a bunch of money because <laughs> he had recently, about the time he had just figured out that people were reselling his stuff on eBay for mm. astronomically marked up prices. So he was charging like, you know, hundreds of dollars for a, a piece. But I do have a piece of original Adam Hughes art. It's, it's quite big, just pencil drawing of, of Black Canary. And it's very, very cool. Wow, that's great. Michael May, I want to see 
see. Uh, you could do it as like a series on Twitter or something. I want to see all of these commissions. If you have a bunch of commissions, I want to oh, see them. Okay, I'll do it. I'll do that it. Is yeah, awesome. that sounds fun. That sounds awesome. Uh, yeah, I, I'll say for me, like, I was a huge Gen 13 fan, and he did this, like, two-issue miniseries called Ordinary Heroes. And so that one always stuck out to me. Like, that's probably where I really paid attention to it. But I had obviously seen his Justice League of America covers. Just the expressions that Adam Hughes puts on faces, yeah. like, to me. Like, I'm always so impressed by that. But it's interesting because at this time, he is working on Ghost, but it was part of the Dark Horse World's Greatest Comics initiative that was mentioned by Michael a little bit earlier. But it's not related to the Patrick Swayze film, everybody. Sadly. There's no pottery scene. Yeah. <laughs> Same universe as barbed wire. Just think of, in that kind of realm. But Ghost is essentially the story of a gun-toting, intangible woman in white who was murdered, and she's trying to find the clues to catch her killer while dealing with villains that come from, essentially, it's like a man's world. And, you know, her weakness is anything made of jade. Kind of her kryptonite. That's weird. Yeah. And ultimately, it's like a female version of the Shadow, if you've never seen uh, Ghost. But she has actual supernatural power she's an actual ghost um do you guys have any recollection of seeing ghost comics it seems like it's right up michael's alley so yeah. i would think i just want to say just from this article like i actually now would see if it's in comicsology or whatever and, and read it because i'd like to i'd like to read it that sounds cool especially with the shadow type connection I, i'm a big shadow fan yeah like i remember i read all of those comics greatest worlds at least like the first issues of them and ghost was one of the ones that really connected with me right away like you said adam this is completely about my alley like it's this this beautiful woman who's also very kind of dangerous and damaged and adam hughes is drawing her and i think mike bignola may have done like a cover to you and she was always a hard character for me to just like get all of her stuff and read because it because it was a company owned character it was just very dependent on who they had kind of writing and drawing her mm. at the time so i kind of fell off of her for a while but kelly sue DeConnick actually did a re boot at some point early in her career and, uh, and yeah. I quite liked that. So yeah, every once in a while they'll try to bring Ghost back and depending on who it is making the comics, I'll definitely pick it up. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like you mentioned, so Adam Hughes is handling the first story arc and then the book is taken over by a guy named Matt Haley who actually is profiled in this issue as well as like this up and cover. But the book is, yes, beautifully illustrated. What's interesting though is the stories are very critical of the male gaze while also featuring the objectification of women <laughs> and how they're drawn and then uh -huh. demonizing the patriarchy in the character's inner monologue so it's very whiplash inducing <laughs> when you're reading it it's like well, you're saying one thing but you're showing me something else and mm -hmm. Hughes kind of addresses that he's like it's not my fault the writer writes these situations because he knows I draw pretty girls so I, I actually read like the first uh, seven or eight issues and yeah it really is like a fun read it's engaging it's got a lot of just variety in the stories so you know, a lot of them are just basically just one-off stories while she's gathering little bits and pieces of her her mysterious past and things like that so it's really neat if only for the hughes art in those first few issues but uh, also Adam Hughes says he's developing original ideas as backup stories. One of those is called All American Girl, which is essentially a gender-swapped Captain America, where the Cap character dies and she passes Vitamin X to her sidekick, who's like the Bucky. <laughs> then that girl inherits super soldier-like powers, becomes All American Girl. And also Brave is about a heroine named Olympia, who's like it all celebrated in her universe, but then she travels back in time to when she was four and chooses 
chooses not to be a public superhero and secretly uses her powers to stop her arch nemesis from behind the scenes. So it's kind of an interesting premise, but neither was published as an ongoing series mm. from what I could find. I found an All-American Girl trading card as part of the Creator's Universe set, which was a set of trading cards where, you know, artists that were up and coming with like, hey, I got this idea. Anybody want to make a comic? Anybody? <laughs> but yeah, so it's very, very cool to learn a little bit more about Adam Hughes. Hey there, geeks! We're just taking a break from the show to tell you about our sponsor this holiday season, Fun.com. And stay tuned, because you're going to learn how you can get 20% off at Fun.com. But why Fun.com? Well, they have everything you need for the pop culture lover in your life, but of course, they have a wide selection of superhero and comic book-based gifts as well. Let me just tell you some of the stuff that I was looking up and was super impressed by. First of all, have you ever wanted to have a fully decked out Batman 1989 bedroom? Well, right now, you can get a three-piece comforter set and a rug to go on the ground. Man, living in your own little bat cave every morning. How about uh, something for your furry pal? A Venom squeaker toy for dog. Let Eddie Brock get slobbered on for once. Looking to get a little bit more high class? How about the DC Comics Star Labs desktop stationery set? Yep, you could write some official memos direct from Star Labs. If you've got a Wonder Woman in your life, why not hook her up with a single brew coffee maker branded with the Wonder Woman symbol and a seven quart Wonder Woman slow cooker. You add a little bit extra fun to the kitchen with a Batman logo two slice toaster. It'll toast the bat signal right onto your toast. But hey, if you want to get some Marvel in your morning, how about a seven inch Black Panther waffle maker? Yep, get that Black Panther logo right on your waffle for that crunchy delight. Now I'll tell you what I think I'm going to invest in myself is a set of Power Rangers geeky tiki cups. They look like they're carved out of wood and colored in the style of each ranger. But of course they've got Funko Pop figures, all sorts of t-shirts, and of course those exclusive Christmas sweaters with logos of your favorite comic book heroes and villains. How do you get in on the action? Well, all you gotta do is click on the link in our show notes and it'll take you direct to the website where it'll pop up and tell you your 20% discount is now activated and you will get 20% off your order from fun.com. The best part is, if you have a little extra cash hanging around after the holidays, you want to get a little something for yourself? Well, this offer is good through January 7th, 2022. So, be sure to do your shopping this holiday season at fun.com. And now, back to the show. Another guy that I'm sure you know a whole bunch about, gentlemen. This article from The Hip is an interview with editor-in-chief of Marvel, Valiant, Defiant, and now Broadway Comics, Jim Shooter. He is a very controversial figure who got more chances than most at running comic book companies in the 90s. So either he's really good at talking to the suits or he's got some talent. I tend to fall on the latter. I think he's a very talented guy. But most of this article is Shooter defending himself against past critics and creators that he worked with who painted him as the villain. And so Shooter's take is that he was trying 
trying to approve things for creators at Marvel, for example, like campaigning for and implementing a lucrative royalty plan that many of these creators benefited greatly from, but then he was unfairly made the scapegoat by upper management when they were trying to cut costs in other areas. He was even cited as the person who wouldn't give Jack Kirby his original art back, which was not his call to make, according to him. So I'm curious, just from his comics output, what is your favorite piece of Jim Shooter work? Or have you guys met him, Michael? I have not met him. Most of the familiarity I have with his actual work is when he was editor-in-chief of Marvel. Like He was the editor-in-chief kind of when I was really getting into Marvel for the first time. And I, I feel like Jim Shooter is a complicated dude because I do think he's super talented. I also can totally believe he's really hard to work with. I remember hearing stories that he was like he was the guy during his term as editor-in-chief of marvel like he his, one of the big things that he had in his the bee in his bonnet was he wanted every title everything had to be boiled down to like a, a catchphrase like it, it, a, like a motto like a statement of like this is what this comic is about so like x-men is a school for mutants so all of the stories had to kind of reinforce this idea that the, this was a school for mutants and, and each title kind of had something like that where and he really didn't want the creators deviating from that idea i think he was also one of the the big proponents one of the first guys that really talked a lot about how every issue somebody's first issue and so what you would have again like most of my experiences with the x-men but you know that's why you would have tons of exposition in the first couple of pages like catching the reader up to speed on whatever the story was that you know had gone before because chris claremont's stories are just so yeah. epic and expansive like you need a lot of you know and they, this is long before they started putting the the previously on banners you know in the in the fronts of comics so it would all have to be explained in exposition and dialogue and little boxes that you know tell you each character's name and everything so i think i don't know i don't I don't agree with all the decisions that he made, but boy was there some classic legendary stuff produced under his leadership there yeah and some money made i mean if nothing else he (laughs) merchandised marvel in a big way like he made it the money-making machine that it remained you know like i believe that he is the one that really set up that whole yeah we'll do all the licensed comics yeah we'll do this we'll do that you know (laughs) like he he got the deal with mattel for the marvel superheroes secret wars action figures made actual marvel toys outside of mego you know like that kind of stuff so I, i feel like he's definitely if if just from the business side but also has a love for the creative side you can tell but he knows kind of how to work both sides of that but rob did he uh, interfere with any of your favorite comics kind of like what michael said that might be my favorite era of all time of marvel comics when he was the editor-in-chief and i i can't say how much of an influence just as a reader like i didn't even know some of the behind the scenes stuff that michael just talked about but as a reader like so many of the books that i love to this day you know came out during his uh, era as editor-in-chief and so that i don't know i have a, a lot of fondness for him i absolutely believe that that there wasn't just a bunch of creators that he's worked with over the years who just for no reason say boy that guy's a real jerk like i'm sure <laughs> i'm sure there's truth to it but at the same time i'm like yeah guys i'm just a reader so sorry for you but i'm loving these books <laughs> so that's great yeah the alchemy of all of you guys working yeah. together yeah in terms of what he actually wrote i'll just say that my favorite book that he wrote or co-wrote in this case with marv wolfman is the second superman spider-man crossover which had doc Ock 
Doc and the Parasite and Hulk yeah. and Wonder Woman, and I dug the hell out of that. And so that that's probably my favorite thing, even more than The Secret Wars. Uh, I, I think that's my favorite thing that I know that he actually wrote. Okay. Yeah, for me, it's it's later. It's his Valiant Era stuff. I mm. love his first big, you know, run on Exo Manowar. That is just a wonderfully written comic, and the pacing and everything of it is just very, very fun. So I always think Jim Shooter, I mean, he collaborated with a bunch of people in right. putting that together, but he is listed as one of the co-writers, at least. So I always give him credit. But it's interesting, because at this point now, Defiant has gone out of business. <laughs> that was his last endeavor. And now he is teamed with, of all people, Lorne Michaels of Saturday Night Live fame, who he said he originally approached to invest in Defiant to try to keep it afloat, but Michaels wanted to start his own company instead, using Shooter's crew from Defiant Comics. So the Broadway group said to them, quote, we'd really like it if you never published a comic until it was exactly the way you wanted it to be. <laughs> and Shooter says he's never produced a comic in 30 years that was exactly how he wanted it to <laughs> sure. be. So that's kind of like carte blanche. Just go for it, Jim. You know, he actually has a quote about another thing they said to him and it was just like Merry Christmas Jim <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the titles for Broadway comics at this time include Electropolis Technomancers The Powers That Be and Fatal any familiarity at all with Broadway comics guys uh, that's a huge no from me <laughs> it's also a no from me on, on purpose I, I I had a hard time with Valiant I jumped into it a little bit late and the, the titles that I picked up were not great grabbing me I, I, I didn't see what the appeal was and maybe i was just reading the wrong ones i did not read exo man of war uh, for instance but part of me just thought it was because people were making tons of money off of those and the, the speculation around those were were huge so at the time i remember thinking okay this is just about the money this is just you know because they're so low in print run they've got a lot of buzz they're making a lot of money and so that's why everybody loves them so i, I kind of decided valiant wasn't for me until when he went and started defiant was that warriors of plasm Yep, that's yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> that, that had no appeal for me either, and that was so short-lived that, okay, now I'm starting Broadway comics, like, okay, Jim, you did, you're you not you're not doing this for me, clearly. Yeah, like, I, I remember seeing the ads, I remember seeing the books on shelves, but also I was just like, okay, here, you know, here's just another one of these new companies popping up, and so I, I didn't have time for it, but... I recently was at RetroCon, this convention in Pennsylvania, and I got the first few issues of Fatal for free from a booth. And this guy's just <laughs> like, yeah, my buddy has a whole bunch of them. You can just take them. <laughs> so I grabbed as many as I could. And what's interesting is there is a letter in the opening of this book from Jim Shooter that is fascinating in what they say the purpose of the book is, you know, what they say the intent is versus what we get in the actual pages. So Rob, why don't you read that letter from Jim Shooter for us? Sure. Uh, so this is what Jim writes. Uh, As we developed Fatal, each person in our group recalled the strong women in their lives. I told about my grandmothers, both of whose husbands died young, both of whom raised their children alone, struggled and worked into their late 80s. Usually there were no good jobs to be had by women, but both did whatever they could, including dishwashing, door-to-door -door sales, and cleaning hotel rooms. They persevered against all odds heroically. They taught me that self-reliance and honest work of any kind are the foundation 
of self-respect. My mother was a housewife because that was the program in the 1940s, but she got a sales clerk job when she had to and worked her way up to store manager. She had dreams of grander things, most of which were crushed by cruel realities, hard circumstances, and acts of God. But she weathered storms you would not like to face and did just fine. And she managed to succeed at many things, not the least of which was teaching her children about values and courage. I've often thought that if the world had been different and she'd been called off to war instead of my daddy, she'd have given as heroic an account of herself as he did. There were more, many more examples offered by each of us, and little bits of many heroic women became parts of Fatale. You know most of the ciphers that pass for women in comics today are, are Rambos with breasts, much distorted and contorted. None of us could think of a woman who was anything like that. There's nothing wrong with being glamorous. Glamour is part of what makes the fantasy appealing. Fatale, like most television, film, and other heroes in entertainment, happens to be glamorous. Her rootstock is less glamorous, but no less heroic. Don't underestimate her. Sincerely, Jim Shooter. <laughs> All right. So yeah, th this reads like a great eulogy or, you know, in a women's studies class at a college, you know, the opening introduction to the textbook. And and so as I'm reading through these comics, I'm just like, okay, well, I mean, she is well written in that she's very cool and very headstrong and got her own independent mind. That is what this heroine is all about. But then when you look at the art by J.G. Jones, which is actually great art, I mean, it's very well illustrated, but she is featured like in such suggestive poses like there, the, the amount of times she's getting her hair pulled by a guy or getting spanked or getting or she's naked in bed or she's like posing in lingerie in front of a mirror like she's very curvy and they do obey the laws of physics with her anatomy as well i'm just like whoa but i mean like that, that's gonna be a problem so it's like her basic power is she can absorb the strength and abilities of anybody she touches skin to skin and so it's like okay i, I kind of see where that's going and the more people that she comes in contact with the stronger she gets but it was just like you watch it and you're just like okay so you're trying to have your cake and eat it too you're trying to say we're writing a wonderful woman but uh, we're also drawing a very objectified woman i'll probably post a few panels to our social media for people to make their own i i just i just don't think that it would pass any of the tests in 2021 <laughs> for what you can put out there so i i had read this letter just before you know the podcast and i was i don't know anything about fatale or i hadn't read anything Thing, didn't and never heard of her before this character this book but you read this letter and you're like wow they really have the right idea this is gonna be really good and then i googled <laughs> fatale today and uh looked at some pictures and i felt like i had to delete my browser history <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right after i was i was it's, i was amazed that that this is what they were like he wrote about it all this stuff salt of the earth these these women who work their fingers to the bone for their family and for love and for dignity and self-respect and then she just like just like you just said adam oh my god so all these pictures you're like oh, okay jim you really do want that cake and you want to eat it too she's just being glamorous rob yeah, that's glamour <laughs> <laughs> But speaking of glamour, up on the big screen, guys, I think it's time we get into Heroes in Motion. Yeah. 
Savoy Pictures is supposedly interested in producing a ghostwriter film based on a script by David Goyer, who goes on to become the writer of nearly every pre-MCU superhero movie. It's mentioned that Dino De Laurentiis was attempting to make a ghostwriter movie in the 80s, but ran into money problems. Apparently, a Blade movie was also in development in the 80s, for which Goyer has also written a new script at New Line Cinema with Wesley Snipes interested in playing the title character and both of these films do get made eventually can you guys imagine an 80s era ghostwriter movie my gosh i'm trying to imagine like is there a film like a horror film or something that had that type of flame effect around Uh, it like i'm just trying to imagine how they would have done that special effects wise i think there's no way they do the flame and i don't think they would apologize for it either like you think about like the punisher movie from the 80s with Dolph lundgren Mm -hmm. has nothing to do like visually it is not the punisher yeah i feel like the ghost rider would have the same thing maybe he would have had a skull mask he probably yeah like a skull helmet that he wears when he rides his bike yeah right wow i didn't even think about that you're right oh the 80s (laughs) (laughs) we're so spoiled now these days so tim burton is announced to be making mars attacks as his next film instead of the solo catwoman movie starring michelle pfeiffer speaking of the inspiration for a future burton film it's mentioned that an episode of british horror soap opera dark shadows has disappeared making the current library of the series incomplete the rights holders have put out an all points bulletin asking for even a home recorded vhs of the episode to be provided by any fans out there so are you a Dark Shadows fan, Michael? That's another one where I feel like Michael must have gotten into this at some point. Yeah, I am now. Well, I've always loved the aesthetic of it, right? It is very much up my alley. But, you know, we're talking about a soap opera, so meaning that it aired every day for years and years and years. Yeah. And, again, I, I'm the guy who would read Spider-Man comics and get ticked off because I hadn't read the issue from three yeah. issues before. Oh, Michael, so, don't even. <laughs> don't, we'll, never, we'll never see you again. <laughs> yeah, well, but um, you can now go back and watch Dark Shadows from the very beginning, and I have done some of that. I haven't stayed with it. I, I intend to go back because I was really enjoying what i was watching is it a youtube thing or is it, or is it uh, no it was on uh, amazon prime maybe really oh yeah interesting but it's been it's been a year or two since i yeah. did that i need to get back to it because i really did enjoy it but i wasn't even to the uh the, the vampire part yet like barnabas collins hadn't even shown up but it was still like this very gothic story about this young woman who uh, comes from an orphanage and doesn't know anything about her past but she thinks she has some connections to this little town so she goes to work at this big mansion and there's these creepy people who live there and and they all have secrets and and no secrets about her that she doesn't even know and it's very cool very different from the uh the tim burton film well they, they don't have an episode title but they say it's a fifth season episode where the characters get married so if you come across that eventually we'll see if it was actually found and restored yeah yeah i I can imagine there's probably some gaps in the collection um that's online but uh maybe they found it that'd be cool and it sounds like an important one that they're missing too or that they were missing like uh, getting married that's a biggie that's a raider that get some ratings on that one (laughs) but speaking of a biggie for you rob oh yes here we go the spider-man animated series on Fox debuted as the highest rated show on Saturday morning. And then, one hour later, the X-Men animated series scored the same numbers. Stan Lee is contacted for comment and says, I guess you could call this sibling rivalry in the very best sense. Excelsior! (laughs) So, Rob, were you tuning in to Spider-Man Saturday mornings? I absolutely was. Now, do I like and revere that Spider-Man animated series? (laughs) 
that answer is more complicated. Uh, I actually, think, <laughs> I think the first season is pretty darn good, and then as it moves on, it just devolves into chaos like just uh, episodes were just melees and free-for-alls over like with a dozen characters in like a final battle and and it seemed as though like if spider-man lived at the end i guess he won (laughs) (laughs) so but the early ones were like one-on-one like spidey against doc ox spidey against craven spidey against whatever and then those i thought were were well done i just thought it got too crazy and too chaotic as the yeah because they literally everything like an entire season became like a you know a 12 episode series you know it was a, a whole story yeah, arc yeah. so it literally was like a soap opera like dark shadows you know every week you're tuning in for the next installment that picks up where the last one left off and yeah that was kind of off-putting i'm always a fan of the one shots i also hated that they uh very obviously reused animation within episodes oh that stuff drove me crazy yeah <laughs> all right michael how about some more about animation yeah, so this issue features an article about the Max animated series on MTV adapted from the Sam Keith comic book. It's revealed that an MTV executive saw Sam Keith's art at a gallery exhibit, was told by the curator to check out the Max comic book, and was impressed that, quote, it deals with a lot of sociological issues that superhero comics don't, such as the fact that he's a homeless guy, end quote. With that, the series was developed and is currently being broadcast on the network as part of their adult animation initiative. Were you tuning in to the Max? Did you love your MTV? V, Michael? My MTV access was pretty spotty. So no, I didn't. I enjoyed the comic book quite a bit. It was such a sporadic schedule as most independent comic books were in the 90s that uh, I kind of eventually lost patience with it and just quit reading it. But when it first came out, picked up the first five or six issues and was really enjoying it. Rob, I feel like your next post on social media needs to be the Rob with two B's. <laughs> you know, uh, if Michael has, a, he, he can talk to Sam Keith and get a commission of, of me as the, <laughs> as the Rob with two B's. You know, well, I'd, be, I'd be into that. I got the next one here. It's revealed that the sequel to Ace Ventura Pet Detective will be called Ace Ventura Goes to Africa, although the name is later changed to When Nature Calls. Also rumored is that the sequel to The Mask will find the Dark Horse Comics antihero, quote, hitting the beaches of Hawaii. (laughs) I want to understand this, why every sequel, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian, that was supposed to be the sequel. And now they're like, yeah, send him to Hawaii, The Mask. Like, is there a precedent for that in films where a sequel went to Hawaii immediately? I I think just the Brady Bunch going to Hawaii. Yeah. Everyone's like, gotta go to Hawaii. (laughs) Elvis doing Blue Hawaii? Like, I don't know. (laughs) All right. So finally, we get a casting call for a live-action Avengers movie, which is cool. Some of these choices are, well, they're super 90s. First of all, memories of this casting call. Like, I really loved this feature of Wizard Magazine, where... Uh, and a lot of times it was really spot on and it's like, oh, yeah, I would love to see that person as that. But uh, sometimes, as we will get to some of these <laughs> yes. choices yes, here, we will. <laughs> <laughs> it was maybe not the best. So for Captain America, they cast Fox TV football analyst Howie Long as Captain America. Yeah. <laughs> when obviously it's Terry Bradshaw, right? I mean, come on. Like, <laughs> I just think it's funny that they also mentioned, like, yeah, we did actually just say he should also play Venom, but uh, he can play Captain America, too. And it's just like, no, no, no. Like, for me... Honestly, we got the actor in a Captain America movie, but it just never happened. But Robert Redford 
Come on, Robert Redford is Captain America. What do you guys think? Oh, I'm in. I'm in. If you 90s. can, if you can, you got to figure out the right timing. Like it's not in the '90s, but like if you figure, are out you the sure right he was still pretty good looking for like a 50 year old dude in well, the '90s? Still good looking as an 80 year old dude. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time imagining fans really embracing Robert Redford as their Captain America. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you, Adam. I'm I feel like All right. a Howie Long Captain America, though, like he would fit in the universe where Michael Knight's playing Nick Fury. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. He, he's, he's, he'd bring all the gravitas of a Reb Brown to the role. <laughs> <laughs> but he would be so much better than Fabio playing Thor. <laughs> <laughs> That's 100%. They're like, he already has the hair. He's right. got the hair. That is the extent of thought that they put into that choice. Uh, what a what a terrible idea. Like, if, it, if it's just like, who, who is going to play, like, a photograph of Thor? Okay. But yeah, sure. that's it. It's a photograph. The end. Like, you can't do anything else with Fabio in that role. Yeah. But I really like their Iron Man. They uh-huh. picked Timothy Dalton as Tony Stark. The only issue I have is the accent because Tony Stark is so American industrialist. Mm -hmm. So when you have a British actor coming in to take over that role, like, do you think they would ask him to do a different accent or would they just basically say, ah, we're just rewriting it. Now he's from Britain. (laughs) I think he would do it. Like when he got the bond role, he's like, I'm bringing it back to the books. So I don't think if he accepted the role of Iron Man, he would do an American accent just because he's okay. he'd go deep, I think. Right. I mean, and Rocketeer, he had an American accent, right? Like he can do it. Uh, yeah, I guess it was just an affected accent. Right. Just, just <laughs> a, a Hollywood elite. And they, they sound right. kind of, uh, European anyway. Yeah. yeah. Like in the comic books. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not too sure about this next one. I really like the actor, but. Tigra, they have played by Annette Benning, and that's not who I would immediately think of, but... No. I mean, I, I guess I just can't see her running around in a bikini, a yeah. fursuit in a bikini for an entire <laughs> movie. You know, that just, that seems unlikely for Annette Benning. I just say, I'd, I'd have to see a, a lot of different actresses come in and, uh, <laughs> and, and audition. Like, I would probably have to see a lot of choices before I could really make a, a final call on this one. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a supermodel from the era that had, like, an attitude, you know what I'm saying, that could make it work. Because, like, Cindy Crawford, we've already learned, uh, oh, cannot okay. act. But, like, and, and, but same with, like, Kathy Ireland. Kathy she Ireland, was in several oh. movies, but no. Yeah. Yeah. True. So I don't know who it would be, but that, that, that one will put a question mark. I feel like Kathy Ireland could be good enough for Tigra. Probably, really? yeah. I don't, but that's all. <laughs> Cause, cause you as long as they don't savagery. give her any lines. I really one, of the, like... one of the things she's going to do is she's going to like devolve a little bit. In some situations, she's going to go Tiger, and I just don't think Kathy Ireland could do it. Uh, yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. But Annette Bening is way too classy for yeah, uh, Yeah, yeah. And that really... would never be in a comic book movie anyway. Never. <laughs> <laughs> Hawkeye's really interesting, though, and uh, I think I approve. They got Emilio Estevez. Yeah, he's definitely got the intensity. I could see it. Yeah. And and the flippancy, too. Like, like he'd, he'd deliver the wisecracks, I think. Yeah, right. Right. Just like a little bit toned down Billy or maybe a lot toned down Billy. But, um, <laughs> I'll but, make you famous. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I would love to see like whoever you got playing Captain America. Emilio Estevez as Hawkeye is really going to get in that guy's craw. 
<laughs> for Scarlet Witch, they did go with Supermodel. This time, they got Paulina Pariskova, who they acknowledged took a stab at acting in the Tom Selleck flick, Her <laughs> Alibi. <laughs> I have not seen that. I'm a, I'm a huge Tom Selleck fan, but I've, I know, I've never heard of that. Yeah. Uh, like she looks great. I I don't know anything else about her really. Yeah, I, I don't know what her acting chops are. I mean, given where they've taken the character in the modern day, it seems like that would have been a waste to waste on somebody who can't act. Yeah, you know, like yeah. you could add some layers there. Yeah. And at this time, like again, maybe a little too old, but one of the Gabors, you think maybe could do this? <laughs> like either yeah, your Ava or your yeah. Ava. Yeah. You know, I think one of them could really, really pull it off. <laughs> I think uh, Phyllis Diller is who you really want. <laughs> Doctor Ruth, <laughs> Doctor Ruth <laughs> and Scarlet Witch. She's got an accent, sure. Put her. Yeah. <laughs> she must be sexy. She's always talking about sex, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for the vision, we oh, have this is good. Peter Weller. Yeah, that's great. Even the two, they have a photograph of Peter Weller next to uh, a, an, an art, you know, a drawing of the vision, and uh, it, it's him. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I can see it. Yeah. Him. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that one's great. Yep, I think so too. I think that's a really good one. Yeah, Peter Weller does have like this otherworldly quality to him. Like he doesn't look quite human. And his voice, mm-hmm. uh-huh. like that cold, like RoboCop kind of voice for Vision, awesome. Well, I don't know about this next one. Uh, Jarvis, they have played by Magnum PI's John Hillerman. So Higgins as Jarvis. Um, I he's not. I mean, he's proper, but not proper enough. Like, to me, I think you need Michael Ensign. Do you guys know the actor Michael Ensign? That sounds familiar. Yeah, He is the hotel manager in Ghostbusters uh, when they go bust Slimer. (laughs) That guy. I remember him. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Because I agree. I love John Hillerman as Higgins. Love him. I love Magnum P.I., but... It, it doesn't. He doesn't feel like Jarvis. Yeah, I feel like they're doing that just because he can pick an English accent. Um, but <laughs> like Hillerman, like one of his strengths is, especially in Magnum, he's just so kind of sardonic and just kind of looking down his nose. And that's not right. Jarvis. Like you need somebody who's just like completely faithful. And uh, I think you're wasting John Hillerman if you're putting him in that kind of a role. Yeah, you could almost. Although again, maybe the look is different, but you don't see him being alfred more in that case because alfred does mm-hmm. uh, like mm-hmm. after a while in the comics at least and then in, into the uh other media like he really does give it back to bruce and batman and, it, and it's become a big part of his character that he will push back and try to shove some common sense into bruce's head that's a great call i would love to see hillerman play alfred all right and then we uh we need villains so they have um our first villain is baron zemo Played by Jurgen Prochnow. Um, Which is a great name. Uh, <laughs> I, I love this dude. Yeah, he was, they mentioned he was in The Seventh Sign. He was in Das Boot. Seventh Sign is a favorite of mine. He's like really cool at that. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, because Baron Zemo, he's got the mask on the whole time. And Prochnow's got such a cool face. Like, I would he just kind of hate cool to face. see. It's like hiring Mads Mickelson and then putting him, you know, behind a mask the whole time. But well, I think what they would do is probably he wouldn't have the scarred face till the end, and at the end of the movie he puts, oh, you know, I like, like the mask on. Probably, You're absolutely right. That's a, that's because, a home run. Yeah, yeah. At this point in movies, superhero movies, we were not putting heroes behind masks. Like we were not no. putting actors behind masks because that's their bread and butter. They want you to see their face. They want they don't want to act from behind a mask. So yes, you're absolutely right. He would just be Jurgen Prock now the whole yeah. time at the very end. Yeah. 
Now, then, this next guy here, I have to ask, because they, they mentioned the Absorbing Man, right? Uh-huh. As a character who should be part of this Masters of Evil. But they mentioned he should be played by Guardian Angel. Do you guys know this face? Do you no. know who he really is? No. No. I'm not a wrestling fan. This is from the WWF. He was known as the Big Boss Man, where he had a whole, you know, like, police officer gimmick. He was like, you know, the the hard man coming down on you, the Big (laughs) Boss Man. And so, but he must have switched federations at this point, and he was going by the Guardian Angel, so they couldn't officially call him Big (laughs) Boss Man anymore, I guess. So, yeah, I just wanted to point that out, because I figured that was a blank spot for you guys. That totally (laughs) is, yeah. Good call. I feel like having a professional wrestler as the absorbing man is absolutely what you want. But sure, uh, yeah, good as any, good as any, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the radioactive man. They have George the Animal Steel, another wrestler. But this one I do know because he he was uh, Ed Wood. He played Tor Johnson at Ed Wood. Yeah. Uh, sure, big bald guy. There. <laughs> That's all they have. There weren't enough big bald men in Hollywood at this point. Uh, and then for Enchantress, we have Pamela Anderson. No. Feel... Yeah, no. Like, she's not, a, <laughs> she's not a good actor, but I do feel like she is the logical choice for this time period. Like, if you want... But she's not even, like, Enchantress is supposed to be Nordic, and Pamela Anderson is tiny. She's not, like, this big, you know, oh, okay. Amazon. And so I feel like she doesn't quite fit just the character's look. Okay. And I was thinking, I didn't think about the height or uh, stature. I was just, you know, I think she kind of fits like the look in terms of, you know, vivacious or what have you. But she'll have to speak at some point and, <laughs> and, and like talk someone into something. And I just then I just won't believe it as to if Pamela Anderson is doing it. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think you need some type of, like, blonde British actress, you know, because they have to have a little bit more yeah. to them. I, so I, I was trying to think who of that era. Like, they had cast Rebecca de Mornay uh, in a role earlier, but I don't think she quite fits. And I was trying to think of another, like, seductress of, like, the 90s erotic thrillers, you know? Like, who do, who do you <laughs> get? Sharon Stone or... Ooh, that'd Sharon Stone could be, be good. Fantastic. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Rebecca De Mornay, I think, could, could do it almost as as well. But Sharon Stone, I think, is better. Yeah, I think about Rebecca De Mornay and Three Musketeers. Like she was, she kind of had that quality about her. She was, she was kind of reining in her sexuality a little bit and, and and manipulating people in other ways as well. So for Moon Dragon, we have to get the only bald woman that we know. <laughs> who is Persis Kambata from uh, the first Star Trek movie. Sure, I guess if if she's preserved in amber, like <laughs> from 1970, whatever it was, <laughs> the first one came out. Because this is now what 90, what what year is this? 95, yeah, yeah. That's some years have gone by. But yeah, I, I she'd she'd be good at it if if again that that you you kind of manipulated time somewhat. And finally, we have the executioner played by I'm not sure I can pronounce his name, Andrew Bernarski. Maybe yeah, seems yeah. right. <laughs> Who was in the Street Fighter movie and also, I guess, had a small role in Batman Returns. Yeah. Now, the Executioner, is that the same character who was in Thor Ragnarok? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Carl Urban would eventually get the role, not the guy who played Zangief. <laughs> I wonder if they had a street fight for the role. <laughs> this guy does have a mohawk. 
He's got he looks it great. ready to go. Like if, if he had, a, I, I haven't seen uh, the Street Fighter movie or anything, but he's got a great look for it. But uh, I, I guess the ex- executioner doesn't really have a, a lot of depth there either. So he's, he can <laughs> well, probably and do he, it. He was one of the best parts of the Street Fighter movie. I have it on Blu-ray as well as two VHS copies. And <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's a fine film for being terrible. And he is a high point. All right. Well, that did it, guys. That was really fun. That was really uh, fun. But, you know, there's two guys in the world of uh, 90s comics that we know also love to have a good time. It's time for Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. Newsflash! After a six-month absence from the top ten artist rankings, Jim Lee appears out of nowhere at the number five position. How long will it take him to ascend to the top of the hill? Will he ever leave the list again? Time will tell. This is something crazy, because the top ten artists and writers list, it made a big impact on what work people were to get, how many, you know, conventions they were invited to. So, like, as much as it was just arbitrary, according to all the wizard staffers <laughs> we've spoken to... <laughs> it really did make a difference for these people. So Jim Lee being gone for six months was so strange. He was just on it, and then he was gone. And then all of a sudden, he's back. And I don't know what was going on there. Were, were they having a behind-the-scenes tiff? I don't think it was that. Were they just, did somebody literally just delete him from the list accidentally and then they finally caught it oops we may never know now todd mcfarland's ego column this month guys everybody's got opinions is what ego stands for is a battle cry as todd calls out marvel for purchasing the comic book distributor heroes world and selling their comics exclusively through that supply chain as a move only to maximize profits which will mean then less profits for other distribution companies put them out of business not a allow the small press companies to have an outlet so todd basically says that marvel has already 35 percent of the market but this move has set them against the other 65 percent in a quote us against them battle which marvel will lose is his conjecture his final statement is quote the war has begun and i'm gonna be on the side of the winners <laughs> oh, oh todd <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and interestingly enough, a tease for next episode, one of our guests was a comic book store owner at this time, so we will get his perspective on what Marvel buying Heroes World meant to his bottom line. Mm, so how much huge. more did he have to pay for Marvel books and whatnot? That was huge news at the time. Now, Jim Lee has hired Barry Windsor Smith to provide 10 covers for his Wildstorm Rising crossover event, and he is also producing a 126 oversized trading card set called Wildstorm Gallery, which taps artists like Julie Bell and Bill Sienkiewicz and Mark Tixera and others, you know, to paint in kind of a Marvel Masterpieces style, so it's like a fully painted set uh, for characters that you might know one or two of. But we're going to celebrate him as fine art, but not to be outdone, McFarlane has his own 150 oversized spawn trading card set, which includes interpretation of his characters by Jim Lee, uh, Joe Quesada, Sam Keith, J. Scott Campbell, George Perez, Walt Simonson, Tim Sale, and many more. Like, 
it's much more impressive the ad in this issue for todd mcfarland's trading card set than for jim lee's trading card set so he definitely had to one-up his buddy there the funniest part though is that the rare chase card that is drawn by mcfarland of spawn's new costume they say is produced and printed in what is called todd chrome <laughs> name a printing procedure after yourself that's how you do it todd chrome but finally todd mcfarlane has selected up-and-coming artist tony daniel to draw the spawn blood feud miniseries which is written by none other than alan moore now daniel had done elementals at comico after getting rejected quite often by the big two at conventions he said but then he got hired to work on random issues of like justice league and x-force based on that elementals work before being scooped up over immediately by McFarland. so i guess good work if you could get it working for todd <laughs> on an alan moore scripted story very nice very nice so that brings us to our tally so with this issue jim lee is mentioned three times todd McFarland has been mentioned six so that brings our running total to jim lee 263 mentions todd McFarland 274 <laughs> uh that's pretty close to the, the yeah. overall there yeah I know, and Jim was in the lead for a long time, but during that six months, he was oh. off the top ten list and not producing comics. Todd just got in the lead there, so... Everybody was really mad at him for what he did to uh, Eric Larson's book there. <laughs> there, that's what it was. That's, what it was. that's, that's the key. callback. <laughs> All right, well, guys, I think it is time that we close off with a few more laughs. We're going to get into Turok's Top Ten. All right, guys, so this is the top 10 things that would be different if the OJ trial was in a superhero universe. <laughs> now, I have to mention that OJ Simpson has been showing up a lot, like in almost every single top 10 list that Wizard has put out for the last year. So definitely it was on their minds and in the minds of the world. Number 10. The Watcher would show up, note that he is forbidden to interfere in the affairs of humans, and then do stuff anyway. Because <laughs> that is his MO. It sure is. Number nine, televised hearings would begin Stanley Presents. <laughs> yeah, they would. Proudly Presents. Number eight, OJ Smash Puny Humans. Why Puny Humans not leave OJ alone? <laughs> If he had just hulked out and turned green in the middle of those proceedings, that would have been fantastic. Like he tries on the glove and he just bursts off his hand. <laughs> yeah. Number seven, Rod Goldman's kung fu brother screams, You killed my brother! Now I must slake my thirst on the sweetest nectar of all. Revenge! <laughs> Number six, OJ would have a cape. There you go. Yeah. Number five, the Legion of Doom busts OJ out seconds before the verdict is revealed. <laughs> Number four, lots of dramatic upward-looking Gil Kane shots of Judge Ito. <laughs> oh, and would he be dancing? Well, we love the dancing Itos. Number three, the bloody power glove. <laughs> I like that one. Wow. Number two. The Punisher would have already killed O.J. 
<laughs> I think that's my favorite. Yeah, who needs a trial? <laughs> <laughs> and number one, suddenly the entire courtroom appears in a Shi'ar warship. <laughs> there you go. X-Men reference. Got to get one in there. <laughs> Well, guys, this was so much fun. Thank you for joining me, for bringing your stories and your experience and your insight. Man, this was just packed with good comics fun. This really was super fun. Uh, such a blast. Such a fun thing. After this one, maybe I can get rotten apples now, too, not just bananas. <laughs> oh, this is going to be great. Yeah, we're raising your profile, Rob. <laughs> so why don't you guys tell everybody a little bit about the After Lunch podcast and, Michael, the other dozen podcasts you have? <laughs> so, yeah, After Lunch is home base for sure, and you can find it on any of the podcasting platforms that you'd like to listen to to your podcast on um for those who aren't familiar it's a i guess a continuation of uh, the former nerd lunch podcast where the hosts of that beloved show decided they didn't want to do it anymore and i didn't want to let it go and so <laughs> i had already been doing kind of a, a little fill-in show as part of their feed and and i just asked hey what if i kept it going and they said yeah keep it going so we've kept it going and so it's just me and rob we just talk about movies that we've been watching and uh, we play weird games i think one of our first episodes adam was on and uh, pitching an idea about uh the police cop super squad which is really <laughs> yeah. and, uh, we need to do a sequel to that at some point uh, what about you rob what is your take on the after lunch podcast I am the, a junior partner or permanent guest, which is the perfect <laughs> level of responsibility for me. <laughs> like, I, I don't have to organize anything. I don't have to, you know, kind of arrange other guests. I just show up and say stuff. It's great. Uh, so I enjoy it very much. I was a huge fan of the Nerd Lunch podcast and was so excited when Michael asked me to kind of be a regular guest on the After Lunch podcast. So it is a blast time and time again. Speaking of a blast, why don't you also tell people about your twitter feed rob and michael at spidey 4 on twitter and also instagram and i do almost nothing but dumb jokes that just make me happy <laughs> like i I've, i decided a while like early into social media that i was not going to do much commentary on the issues of the day i was never going to really rage tweet or any of those kind of things i was just going to if i thought something was funny i was going to just tweet it out and uh and sometimes I get up to eight likes, you know, and that's it. That's, that's like, <laughs> every once in a while, if I if I pass double digits, I'm like, oh, man, this is doing numbers now. Like, I got 11. <laughs> so. and, and these are all visual gags, guys. Yeah, so this is like much. Photoshopped hilarity. This is not just like, hey, you know, you know what's funny? Fish. <laughs> are they? I don't. Am I supposed to read into that? No, he goes all out. These are fantastic productions that he pulls off. So take a look into that. But Michael, where can people find you? Uh, so the After Lunch podcast has its own Twitter feed, which is After Lunch Pod. And so we'll just I'll, I'll retweet a lot of our guests and, and retweet a lot of Rob. Just other kind of just nerdy things that we happen to think about. Often the things that we've been talking about on the show, like the MCU or Star Trek or, or whatever. But if you're really into pictures of cemeteries and fall foliage, <laughs> then Michael May Comics with an X is uh, my Twitter handle. And uh, we can look forward to seeing a lot of Black Canary sketches in the future. Yeah, that right. Yeah, for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. I I really do want to see those. I think that's great. It's it's uh, it would I'd get to live vicariously through you a little bit there because I I either never I haven't been to that many conventions, but I also just never 
went and, and actually did the thing where you got in line. I always wanted to. And uh, getting commissions is, is something, I don't know, maybe it's a long-term goal of mine. I, I, I just think that's so cool. One of these days, Rob, we'll, do a, we'll go to a convention together. Oh, my God, that'd be so great. Yeah. That would be awesome. I would love to hear that episode of After Lunch. <laughs> it would be very entertaining. Yeah, just so people know, like, this is a community of people that have been podcasting together for years. They were part of this Nerd Lunch family. And so what Michael and, and Rob are doing is just keeping those people in the loop, keeping this group of friends connected. So it's very fun. If you just, you know, need that world of nerdery, you know, to experience for yourself, you know, you're far away from your nerdy friends. Well, here's a group that loves talking about stuff stuff and, and get deep into the weeds so I, I highly recommend it well and of course you can stay in contact with us on twitter at wizards comics on instagram at wizards underscore comics a little tease for you all next time around we have actually a very special episode this is something i've been wanting to do for a while and steven and michael heading off uh, into their other endeavors for the moment gave us this opening to have actual wizard staffers join awesome. us to break wow. down an issue so we We'll be covering issue 46 with longtime wizard editor Brian Cunningham. But also coming on with us is short term toy columnist Sean Audi. But Sean Audi was a comic book retailer during the time that he was writing for Wizard. He was deep into it for 15 years during this era. So we're going to have the perspective of the editorial at Wizard and then what was really going boots on the ground with these people selling comics that were being promoted there. So it's going to be a very, very fun issue and an excellent conversation. So I hope that you will join us for that next time around but in the meantime keep your books bagged and boarded this has been a presentation of the retro network